Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld bringing you yet another episode of Observations, where we get together, talk comic books, pop culture, how they are intertwined, connected, my lifelong love of comics, uh, spinner racks, uh, 7-Elevens, all the way through comic book stores, all the way through the movie theaters that now play all the movies that are based on the comics that I grew up with and some of them that I made. So uh, each uh, session that we do, my comic book therapy that I get to share with you uh, explores a corner, a moment of comics that I have either experienced as a fan, uh, which I have been since the wee age of seven years old, um, all the way through my current state in the comics industry, uh, my, my, my breaking into the comics as a professional in 1987, uh, 18 years old. This, these are exciting times. Uh, for me, they continue to be exciting times. I still uh, grab my comics like you guys. I enjoy my comics. And uh, our journey has taken us from 1975 through the 80s, the Bronze Age, all the greats, all the great names, all the great characters, all the great comics. And we have landed in the 90s. The 90s, which was fertile. I would argue one of the biggest, if not the biggest decade for comics ever. Uh, not just sales-wise, because you certainly have that data that you can throw out there, but I think impact of character creation, the rise of, uh, of, 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 of more freedoms for comic book creators, more, more creators' rights. The 90s, it, it, it really is. It's like, are you talking the early 90s, the middle 90s, the end of the 90s? It all depends on which part of the 90s resonates with you the most. There are people who hate the 90s and they love to, the first thing, if you ever, you, you can spot them whenever you have a conversation is they talk about the crash, oh, the crash, the crash of the 90s. The crash of the 90s was so ultimately complicated and had so many different facets, but everyone wants to draw one silly conclusion. Um, Marvel's bankruptcy that I covered in the Heroes Reborn multi-episode saga here on Rob's Observations. I have been in forums where people say that the Marvel bankruptcy was caused by poor sales on the Marvel comic books at the time. And, and I, as I've said, I've, I've like wandered into those groups on Facebook and said, that's not why. That's not why. The comics were doing great. The comics were a profit center. It was the toys, the stickers, the distribution, uh, the trading card companies, all of that that just cratered Marvel with debt. It was not the comic books. People have mis, uh, mis, uh, just, just misinformation about the 90s, even the people who were there. Um, not, not the people I knew. I, 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 I love to get together with the people who are in the trenches and who are there. And we do share the stories and we see them all much more as they actually happened and not the myth. We're part of the reality of what went down because we were contributing to the comic books, to the distribution, to the labels, to all of it. And, and so, so, you know, it's interesting to confront the myths and, and uh, of what occurred as opposed to what actually happened. And, and my career really took off along with my peers and in the nineties. And we, uh, really changed comic books. And, and that's not me boasting. I am surrounded by umpteen coffee table books that, uh, will, will, will recount the era and our names are all over them. Lee, Liefeld, McFarlane, Larson, Silvestri, because we became kind of the pivot of the entire decade. That is again, not boastfulness. If you were there, 
And if you know me and my peer group, you know I am I am absolutely speaking truth on this matter. And um, but it all started with all of us kind of finding our 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 vehicles that we would ride to greater success. And all of us wound up at Marvel between 1989 and 1990. And we uh, discussed earlier in in an in an earlier. Uh, installment of Rob Observations, where we are knocking on the 90s, 1989, the Batman movie, Legends of the Dark Knight, Mar- DC's launch book to get people a Batman number one in their hands to co- coincide with the you know, great experience they're having watching the Tim Burton, Michael Keaton, Jack Nicholson, Batman summer blockbuster. Uh, those came in construction paper uh, uh, wraparounds on the same cover, same cover of Legends of the Dark Knight, but whether it was pink, blue, orange, or yellow, and they were literally just the logo of Legends of the Dark Knight, and in 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 a you know on, on a black kind of uh, uh, black ink on blue, on orange, on 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 purple, you know, and <laughs> and and, uh, and and yellow, and and that was the collectible of the year, and that really did catch the notice of Marvel Comics. And I recall very specifically Todd being told that the next summer he would be the guy that they would look to emulate the Legends of the Dark Knight success with launching a Spider-Man number one. Todd was doing Spider-Man bi-weekly. Amazing Spider-Man had roared up the charts. And, and this is something that was not lost on Todd or his editor. And I don't talk about Todd's editor enough. He's a really great guy named Jim Salakrup. I think everybody loved Jim. Jim was a very soft-spoken but very persuasive uh, editor and, and, and fostered a ton of young and great talent and is responsible for marrying Todd McFarlane with Dave Michelini and going on that rocket ship ride that transformed Amazing Spider-Man. And he is also responsible for uh, recruiting Eric Larson to jump and uh, jump on the books and, and, and uh, team up with Todd and give you two dazzling Spider-Man books a month, and you know the, when you get that one-two punch, it is powerful. And and uh, they were competing with the X-Men office in a way that those books hadn't competed in over a decade. The Avengers books, the 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 Avengers family of comic books, the Fantastic Four, they were not anywhere near competitive with with uh, the X-Men. But man, Spider-Man under Jim Scalacrips tutelage uh, and Danny Fingeroth. Uh, we're putting together some exciting young talent. And, and I know because I was recruited. I did one annual during that time as part of the, you know, jump into the Spider-Man family. Uh, it was fun. It was an Atlantis Attacks tie-in. It had She-Hulk and the Abomination, and I had such a good time doing it. And, uh, you know, the whole time, Jim's like, Rob, you should, should join us. You should join us. He's so laid back. Rob, it's Jim. You should join us. You should... You know, you should, you should, you should come over here. We're having such a good time. That was his pitch all the time, and he was so irresistible. And he was like, oh, "Don't, don't go to the X Men books. Hang with us. Do, do Spider Man. We're, we're having such a good time." And he had tried to get me to do a uh, two part uh, Silver Sable fill in uh, that was written by Peter David uh, that that had Spider Man and Silver Sable. And I had read the plot. He sent it to me. Uh, for me to look it over, and I, I just it wasn't something I wanted to sign on to at the time. 
this is a period for me that I am feeling my way. I came to Marvel from Hawk and Dove because as I've recounted uh, in, in previous episodes, and, and literally, if you've ever seen me at a convention, I, I, I tell this story how Bob Harris called me from the X-Men office, who was taking over as the edit editor of the, of the X-Men titles and wanted to shake up with some new talent and uh, really gave me a hard pitch that he could see me thriving in the X-Men office. So, you know, what 19-year-old, 20-year-old kid doesn't respond to that? I'm going to, to Hawk and Dove, which were like arguably D-list uh, DC characters, to I'm being asked to come work in the most prestigious office in comic books. So, and, and, and you know, if anyone who knew me, X-Men was my jam. X-Men was my jam since 1975. Giant Size X-Men number one. I never look back. I have every issue. I, I, I pulled every single one of those books off the spinner rack later at the direct market. And Wolverine, Storm, Colossus, Professor X, Cyclops, Iceman. And, and of course, they built the family out to X-Factor and Wolverine and the New Mutants. And I had been collecting all of those. New Mutants was the very first spinoff. 1982 graphic novel, Chris Claremont, Bob McCloud uh, took that ride, stayed with it. Uh, Wolverine had launched... Uh, his own solo title. They had given it to John Buscema, who was, uh, you know, huge, you know, uh, uh, part of the Marvel pantheon. Uh, literally, would be on my, you know, Mount Rushmore of 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 artists. His his Avengers, his Silver Surfer, his Prince Namor. But but for so many years, kids my age, we associated John Buscema with Conan. So it was, Wolverine was a natural to give to John B. Samuel. It was, all, it was almost like a reward, like for your years of service, we're going to give you a top-selling book. And literally, I mean, Conan and Wolverine have so many similarities. Berserker rages, very masculine characters, um, you know, uh, and, and a lot of fantasy settings. Madripoor, where Wolverine was set, was kind of like this, this, uh, this South Asian island, gangsters, pirates. I mean, it was very, you could kind of, Write your own adventure, gangsters. You know, uh, 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 mysticism. Uh, just, just all of it. It was perfect for John. I can totally see why they went that route and gave that to him. Even though I believe there was some, maybe, maybe a, a better choice down the line, or, or, or shortly thereafter, in regards to that book that I'll cover later, because. Uh, my peer group was all chomping at the bit. We all wanted to get on that book because we felt like there was some some details that are inherent with Wolverine that the fans expect that go beyond just a Conan-style adventure, no matter how great, and trust me, he drew great. Wolverine, again, another book that went by bi-weekly, 89, 90. Uh, it comes on board, inks some issues over John Buscema. I mean, these are ridiculous artistic matchups, but the tastes were changing in comics. They were changing. But the X-Men family, Wolverine, X-Factor, X-Men, New Mutants was very strong. But Jim Salakrip is getting this wedge in there and those, those Spider-Man books are climbing. They are climbing the charts. If you were there and you remember, again, the excitement that Todd was generating on those books, um, it, was, it was palatable. He was arguably Marvel's most buzzed about, if not the, their top seller. He was really uh, bringing the heat. And David Michelini writing those Dave, those those uh, bi-weekly issues with Captain America, with Red Skull, with Sabretooth. Um, these were these were exciting, you know, uh, jam-ups. I mean, and, and seeing Todd expand and draw beyond just Spider-Man and, and have Captain America and Silver Sable 
and 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 uh, and and Sabretooth and and like I said, the Red Skull. I mean, perfect for Todd. It was it, they were really making Spider-Man a bigger book. The scope was bigger. Todd was engaged. The artwork was popping. So I am bouncing around doing X-Men fill-ins. Uh, X-Factor is uh, is one of my earliest ones. Then then the New Mutants annual. Then an issue of X-Men with Chris Claremont. Um, it was more of a humor-based issue, but it was X-Men nonetheless, so it was great. I'm, I'm, I'm drawing Colossus and Wolverine and Havok and, and, and Dazzler and Storm and, and Nightcrawler. I'm not Nightcrawler, Longshot, Longshot. So I'm, I'm having a good time. I'm doing X-Men. It's fun. But as, as I've also spoken of in earlier uh, episodes with you guys, I was not on one solid title. And there was talk between myself and Bob Harris that I would take over the New Mutants. But man, I, I really was playing hard to get and it's easy to look back and see why because I was so uncertain because the the book that I was the least excited about in the X-Men family was the New Mutants and we'll get back to that in a little while because as I've also um, shared before I was getting offers from again Jim Solicrup come on join us we're having such a good time I just he was such he'd always give me that spin of come on Join us in the Spider-Man office. Oh man, the noise we would make! You and Todd and Eric, and it was it was definitely something that I would hang up the phone and daydream about and wonder what kind of picture, how would that look? You know, what would it, what would it look like if 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 we had all jammed together? And 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 really, because I became one of the pivotal kind of players in the X-Men office, and you removed me. I mean, it, it's weird. It, it really is weird if I had gone down that path. And, and let's say you had Spider-Man by Todd, Amazing by, by Eric, and, and Spectacular Spider-Man by myself. What a weird paradigm shift within the halls of Marvel, the Spider-Man office. Uh, it, very strange, because you're, you're not going to get to a lot of the stuff that I would, I'm going to get to in this podcast if I, if I go down that road. And it was tempting, but ultimately, as we both know, it didn't happen. I was also offered Doctor Strange. I've covered this before, but it's worth repeating. I very much was ready to fully commit to Doctor Strange. I saw what Todd was doing on Spider-Man. I saw how the audience was reacting to it. I've talked about how potent that Steve Ditko, you know, uh, uh, just just bad rock, bedrock, bedrock of influences. I mean, he laid the concrete with those visuals. All of the Ditko uh, visuals, whether it's, again, Spider-Man himself or Craven or, or Doc Ock or Vulture or, or Electro, um, you know, uh, just just Mysterio, all of that Ditko weird, cool uh, designs. They they call out uh, to you as an artist. They're 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 so fun and so visual. And 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 at this point, you're like, I could put a modern twist on this. And and so with with Doctor Strange, also everything I love about Doctor Strange is wrapped up with Steve Ditko, the mindless ones, Dormammu, Nightmare, Baron Mordo, all the weird uh, ways that he depicted. Uh, Doctor Strange using his powers, um, the Eye of Agamotto, um, just, uh, again, all of the different dim dimensions. I just felt like there was something there, but they were like, oh, no, 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 we want to really um, ground Doctor Strange. And when I was growing up, there was a there was a, uh, a show that was on called Kolchak, the Night, Stackers, Night Stalker, and he was a kind of a paranormal detective that, that hunted down on a weekly basis modern werewolves, vampire, vampires, wizards, sorcerers. Uh, just supernatural stuff, but he was more grounded, and they said they wanted to go go into a Kolchak, that the Night Stalker 
uh, realm and, and make him more of an investigator of the paranormal. And I said, oh, man. I said, hey, dude, if you want to do the Steve Ditko stuff, I'm there. And I, I've recounted how Ralph Macchio, the editor that was offering this to me, who would, they would then, I mean, look, they, they, they scored a great artist. I, they got Jackson Geis. Uh, formerly Butch Geist, he he maybe he was dancing with it while they were dancing with me. That's not uncommon, and and waiting for one of us to say yes, or maybe Butch had already turned them down and need more convincing, and I was the second option. I'll never know. I just know when I was presented to it, when I was presented with that opportunity, I I told them what I wanted. I felt like I had some leverage given that I was in demand. I was getting a lot of phone calls, as all of us were. Uh, if you don't think people were tripping over themselves to get work from Jim Lee, they were. He landed on Punisher, and we're going to get to that in, 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 shortly and, and examine kind of the effect that Punisher had uh, in, in this period of 1989, 19, 1990. But with Dr. Strange, I just I kind of I, I my ground, and Ralph Macchio said, Who do you think you are? I'm, I'm offering you regular work. Who do you think you are? Man, you are really full of yourself. And I was like, uh, I, I'm just, I just feel like this would be not something I would do well. I've, I've mentioned repeatedly again and again and again, I... I'm not going to give you a good product if I'm not inspired to do it. I have to be inspired. It has to move me deeply. Money will not um, motivate me. It never has. I go for opportunity for artistic expression and inspiration. And the the, the Dr. Strange that he was uh, talking to me about was just not something that was interesting to me at the time. They were firmly uh, ensconced in their, in their position of how they wanted to depict Dr. Strange going forward. My more Ditko-esque, Stanley-esque, uh, vision was not one that they wanted to travel down, so I didn't do it. Uh, an editor named Bobby Chase, she's been in the business a long time. She formerly stepped down from DC Comics, multiple three decades in the business. Uh, she had offered me the Hulk. So now I'm also looking at another uh, book where I would be following Todd McFarlane. It wouldn't be a direct follow of Todd McFarlane because they had an artist named Jeff Purvis who had directly followed him. I think Jeff was a storyboard or an animation guy and was not going to be able to continue on, or maybe that's the story that I was told. But um, other than doing some Hulk sketches up uh, the, 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 and, 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 and maybe having a couple conversations, again, I would be uh, working with Peter David on that, and I had to really balance the fact that there was uh, this, this New Mutants offer that still intrigued me, and ultimately I, 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 I declined to step on the Hulk. I really thought the stuff that Todd had done was was fantastic. And again, I didn't want to get caught in following Todd's footsteps. And there's a lot of, you know, you got to plan your career. Your career just doesn't happen. You have to scheme it. You have to plan it. You have to work for it. You have to earn it. You have to, um, and, and you have to, you have to manage it. And, 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 and there are so many young artists, a couple of which who have pulled me aside. They've wanted my advice. And especially in the last 10 years, and I've given them ad that advice, the advice, how I see it, what I would do, winning advice, only to see them not do that advice whatsoever. And some of them, I'm telling you, that window, that door only stays open for so long. I'm going to say this repeatedly, time and again, especially in, in the many episodes to come, you have to know when that door is open and when to walk through that door. And some of these guys think that door is going to be open forever, and it's not. And those 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 make or break it moments are far and few between. And you have to know when 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 they present themselves. And sometimes you have to be as select as let's make a deal. And what's behind door number one is no good to you, and do, and, and door number three is no good to you. It's door number two, okay? And that's literally you have to weigh all these options. And I just felt like the Spider-Man thing was 
again, I'm, I would be following in Todd. Todd had the microphone. He was the guy. He was defining everything. I'm not going to leapfrog him. He's already way out ahead of me on the book, doing it now bi-weekly for, for three months. I mean, uh, so I would just be the, the Robin in that car, uh, in, in that mobile with Todd in the Batman role. I felt with the Hulk following uh, Todd was probably not the best idea. I think our stylistically, given how much we were both influenced by Art Adams, that would have also not been a positive move. Uh, eventually, I believe Dale Keown takes that gig, and you should all be so thrilled because he did take Hulk in a different direction. He clearly, thoroughly enjoyed the work that he was doing with Peter David, and we all benefited. That book is so resonant. So many times when people are asked online who their favorite Hulk was in the last 20 years, 30 years, it's always Dale. Dale just owns that space and 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 that they, they were a perfect marriage for each other. So in the meantime, why am I not committing to the new mutants yet? Well when Do when Bob called me up, he said, I want to shift things, I want to shake things up, but I, I can't let my artist go just as yet. He has had a uh, a, a young uh, they're having a baby. His wife and he are having a baby. This is what I was told. And so so I took it as, fa as face value, and he said, so I'm going to ease you in, but it's going to be a few months, which is why he gave me all the fill-ins. And I was then advised by Todd not to be a jackrabbit and did not stop bouncing from fill-in to fill-in and get on something that's going to reflect the same kind of success that I had with Hawk and Dove. So as I'm talking to you about this, again, it's not just, hey, the stories of Rob Liefeld. It's stories of a young artist trying to find his footing and find his way. And I know that Doctor Strange as Kolchak is not what's going to do it for me. I, Doctor Strange, with all the Ditko stuff, I would have loved to have gone down that road. I would have drawn that book. That is something I was prepared to do. I don't know. Could I have been the guy that redefined Doctor Strange? We'll never know. I wasn't allowed that opportunity. They were set. That happened. Uh, the, the, the thing is, there was a uh, rumblings of a new title. And now, uh, right around this time, uh, I am sharing a studio with Jim Valentino. Jim Valentino, who I had known from so much of his work, uh, he had done an independent book called Normal Man. And uh, I loved Normal Man. It was very humor-based, but it was brilliantly written, very witty, very clever. And I did not know that Jim Valentino was a, an Orange County resident like myself until we met through a mutual friend. And at that point, we had just started hanging out. I would go over to Jim's house. I would hang out with him and his wife. We would watch Star Trek The Next Generation. We would um, just, you know, talk comics. And Jim would show me Jack Kirby comics and John Buscema comics and Steve Ditko comics. We both had a relationship with George Perez that we had worked up over the years. He more as a pro, me more as a fan. But we, we talked about different people we knew, different conventions. It, it was a rich, rich, rich uh relationship. And I'm going to tell you, Jim, Jim was a crucial, vital uh, influence on the, 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 the artist and, and the uh, creator that I became. He guided me in so many ways, specifically more so than anything in, in really uh, picking up the best possible storytelling um, uh, disciplines and techniques and, and, and really more than anything, shoving just so much Jack Kirby down my throat and telling me, Look at how he stages a page. Look at the information he gives you. Look at how how um, how he parses it out. He doesn't overload every panel to panel. It's perfect. He never gives you too much. He never gives you too little. 
and uh, which was a great balance to me looking at George Perez's 12 panels a page and thinking that that was something that I could emulate, helping me understand that that is George's signature style that he does and that you need to find something more. You need to build up your basics. And he did. He helped me build up my basics. And we had such a good time together that we um, started a studio. And it was one close to his house, which is about a half hour drive for me. Not a big deal. But I wanted to be with Jim, be in the studio, draw with another comic book artist. And Jim was making his way through Marvel. He was doing fill-ins. He was doing a, lots of issues of a book they had relaunched called What If? And he was constantly pitching Marvel new ideas for comic books because Jim wanted to write and draw his own book. As you all know, that would eventually be Guardians of the Galaxy. But prior to Guardians of the Galaxy and prior to New Mutants, we had gotten a word that they were doing, a, they were looking, Marvel is the they here, looking to do a book called The Young Avengers. A Young Avengers title. Now, my passion for The Avengers runs so deep, so as does Jim's. And we felt like we were the perfect writer-artist combo for this. And we did like a couple-year outline, sent it to Marvel. This has been shared through Marvel, through Marvel editorial over the years. Tom Brevoort, I know, shared um, parts of our pitch and some of the art. Um, and we had collected together uh, Nova and uh, Speedball. Speedball, again, a Steve Ditko character. A Steve Ditko character. So I'm getting my Steve Ditko juice out of this cool new Steve Ditko character that I thought I would just just depict in the best possible way. Nova was obviously a key character and I had just finished doing a, a annual, New Mutants annual with Namor Rita, which is Submariner's cousin and she is just a firecracker and so much to draw and such a great visual. So they were the cornerstones, Namorita, Nova, um, a young Vance Astro, and uh, who, who, who Jim would later do in Guardians as the existing Vance Astro, and then a uh, so in Speedball. So th that, that was our four. And then I believe we were taking turns building out uh, new characters. Night Thrasher was not one of the characters. That is a character created by Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends when New Warriors debuted in the pages of Thor. Uh, you know, shortly after when they when they they really firmed up their plans and knew what they were going to do, but at this point we just loved all the stuff that we were going to do with the Young Avengers, and we wrote this long again two year outline. Jim and I had such a good time putting this together. Now Bob Harris is like, "What are you doing?" You know, I, I thought we were uh, I thought we were gonna you know, do new means together. And I'm like, yeah, I just, I just love young Avengers. I just love you. This idea is great. And aren't they thinking of doing this? And Bob's like, yeah, yeah, they are. No, no, that's, you know, Bob was up front. He said, I get it. I get it. If that's your thing. Well, then one day I got a call while I'm in the studio with Jim, Jim's Jim had the front portion and I had the um, back portion of the studio. And, uh, I, I, the phone rang and it was Mark Grunewald, the late Mark Grunewald. He, who had given me my first work had, you know, shake my hand and, and, and hired me in Oakland, California in the summer of 1987, spring of 1987, and gave me my very first Marvel Universe handbook entry. So, so you know, I know Mark well. I know the position that he holds at Marvel, and he he, he was like an executive director, uh, possibly the editor of the book if it was going to go through. And he said, hey, Rob, it's Mark. Hey, look, I, I just, I just want to go over some stuff with you. And he was fairly, he was kind, but he was serious. And so I understand that you really want to do this Young Avengers stuff. And we understand that, that you really want to do this. But here's where he pauses and he says, Rob, as I understand it, you have an offer to do the New Mutants. 
and Bob is hot, is excited for you to do that, and we're excited to see you do that. And Young Avengers is maybe nine months off, could be a year off. It's not something it's not something that we are going to greenlight right now. It's not something that we're going to get moving at this time. Um, but if it's if if it if 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 it's work you want, you have it on New Mutants. That is the bird in the hand, and he literally said that. That's the bird in the hand, and the bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And I'm telling you, Rob, I advise you take the bird in the hand. And I got through his tone and his kind of, uh, he was almost out of patience with me because I think he was, I, he and Bob were, were, were tight at this time. And I think he was definitely calling on behalf of Bob Harris going, Hey, Bob has given you this opportunity. It hasn't started yet, but it's about to, and you are about to jump ship and you should really think about this, this is a good gig. Stick with this gig. It resonated with me. Jim Valentino got the word as I did, that they were not going to go in, in the Young Avengers direction at that time. But they said to him, we like your Guardians of the Galaxy idea. Would you want to uh, pursue, give us, build us out a, a bigger outline on Guardians of the Galaxy and, uh, and, and, and compete for that job? And, and, and this, this is a strong contender for what you could be doing, Jim. So Jim and I are both kind of granted our, our wishes for regular work. And I am now finally being called to say, Rob, we, we, it is in focus. It's time. It's time that we move forward and give you new mutants. This is Bob Harris. Well, I said to Bob, I was concerned about the book. I, I, I wanted to know what, what, what the parameters of this was. And he says, to be honest, Rob, I am looking to move the writer off the book. This is, this is kind of an all-around uh, 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 kind of house-cleaning and the book is really low in sales. And, and, and I, I did fail to mention that I had already turned down the job to um, follow up Walt Simonson on X Factor. And I was quick to rebuff that because, again, I cannot be following one of the greatest of all times. That's bad for my gig. That is not good for my career to then suffer by comparison and be the guy that is... Um, barely holding the book together when everyone is missing this seminal giant. You guys know how I feel about Walt Simonson's work from Thor and, and then his X Factor is fantastic. And Bob literally did say to me, well, X Factor is a great financial gig. The royalties and the sales are terrific. And I said, I understand. I understand that. And that's when he said, well, then, then let's make it new mutants. And here's my plan. And that's when he had originally pitched, I will give this book to you, but I've got to give it some time and, and, and find something else for Blevins to do, who was the artist on the book and had been on the book for maybe a couple of years. And, uh, but, but when it came down to like, am I going to take this gig? Because as I said, I had leverage, I had interest. I was turning down gigs from other people. This is right around the time when I am turning down the Hulk. Dr. Strange was a little earlier. The Hulk is staring me in the face. I desperately want to be in the X-Men office. Uh, X-Men is not an opportunity to me. Wolverine is not open to me. They are very clear on that. Uh, so, so New Mutants is going to be my vehicle. Do I take it or do I not? So I talked to Bob about what I, I saw as the weaknesses of the New Mutants book and why it was the lowest selling book in the family. And, and here's, the, here's the thing. If you go back in time and you look at those X-Men books, and, 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 and again, when the X-Men turns up the notch and goes bi-weekly every three months in the summer, they are battling the Reavers at this point. Okay, they are. Uh, they, they there's there's follow the mutants. There there there's this Genosha storyline. That they're they're battling Sentinels. Um, 
that they, they even go to the Savage Land for a two-issue excursion. Um, that they, they're battling Mister Sinister, Inferno, demons. That the, the X-Men book has the big scope, big action. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the the Reavers have guns and weaponry, and they're hunting the X-Men. Wolverine's got his claws. Uh, Mark Silvestri is drawing the sexiest rogue that ever lived. Um, if he's not, then Rick Leonardi is. They're both just crushing it back and forth, and the book is very exciting. Um, X-Factor is coming off this great run with Walt Simonson where the characters have never looked better. Big explosive action, Apocalypse. You've got their part in the Inferno storyline, which was amazing. When Mark and, and Walt Simonson were doing Inferno, I, it may have been one of the, the peak eras of the X-Men. It was just fantastic. But even then, the New Mutants kind of always got the short shrift. They never made that book important. They never made those characters seem important. Uh, the character designs, I thought, were off. And I told Bob, I said, Bob, I'm closer to age to these characters. I am 22 years old, okay? I'm 22 years old, 21, 22, one of the two, um, whatever it was in 88 when, I, when this was being talked about. So, I, okay, I'm 21. I'm 21 years old in 1988 when this is being discussed. And I, I'm just telling him, Bob, I watch MTV all day long. And, and, and the characters in The New Mutants are depicted as uh, teenagers in 1982 were, and yet it's 1988, almost 1989. A character named Boom Boom, fun, fun character, cool power, explosive kind of lights, concussive blasts. She was wearing a giant uh, bow in her hair, a giant pink bow, big oversized sunglasses. She had suspenders. She literally looked like Madonna on Mad all of Madonna's videos for her first album. Um, Holiday and, uh, you know, uh, that, that, that era, um, of, 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 of Madonna when she first, you know, all the way through, you know, like, like a virgin that, that I was in high school again, those, those albums were huge and, and the, the curls in her hair, the, the suspenders, you know, it was, it was definitely the dress you up for my love Madonna. Okay. And then standing next to her was Richter who they had an off-again, on-again relationship. Richter is literally Billy Idol from 1982. Rebel Yell, bare chest, uh, leather jacket with the cut-off sleeves, and blue jeans. I mean, literally, the dancing with myself, Billy Idol, uh, you, you know, is, is, the pop, is populating the book as Richter, and he has a mohawk. So he's your tired punk rock trope from 1982. Um, Rusty and Boom Boom are kind of these two lost kids, they wear like jackets and baggy pants. Um, they, they, they like look like they came out in like 1984. Um, Cannonball is drab and is drawn super unattractive with the big ears, the big nose. Um, Rain is this kind of whimsical looking wide-eyed lost character. This is how I viewed them as a fan. I bought New Mutants out of habit, but it was definitely not the first on my pile. It would be like a second or third week purchase. Um, I, I bought it to keep up with, with the crowd, but at this time, X-Men selling, let's let's call it 650,000. Uh, X-Factor and, and Wolverine are selling 500,000. And my first issue of New Mutants, uh, they, they tell me that the issue before me has sold about 109,000 copies. So we are really lagging behind. And so I asked Bob, what can I do on this book? What can I do? Because on the flip side, when these characters, uh, twice a year, they would be featured in an annual by Art Adams where he would draw them much more attractive, much more cool 
with his amazing rendering, tight style, everyone with, with short waists, long hips, and extremely long legs, you know, really broad torsos, the, the, the buff arms out, they're always their shoulders and their, their arms are cocked back, and he would do great details on their hair. Ileana Magic was one of his favorites. He made her beautiful, beautiful hair poses. The kids were really attractive, even, even in some cases sexy. Um, every year, Chris Claremont would co-opt Art Adams and give you the new mutants that you never thought you would want so badly. Now, in the monthly book, let's let's just get this out of the way. Brett Blevins is an amazing artist. He is a fantastic illustrator. He has amazing skills. I, I defer to him as a superior artistic talent. Uh, end of story. His style was not suited to the X-Men office. His style was not suited to those books. He drew beautiful, whimsical. He should have been animating like The Little Mermaid or Aladdin or one of the major Disney motion pictures. He was that good. His stuff looked like, you know, from Ralph Bashki, uh, fi Fire and Ice, or or uh, uh, just 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 his stuff lived and breathed and reeked of the very best of animation, and you could see his stuff on cells. But uh, in the comic books, it wasn't giving you that punch. Not when you had the very masculine, uh, you know, Mark Silvestri and Walt Simonson art, and then John Buscema. So you've got, and th these are, guys, if you're listening to me and you're wondering if these are actual terms that you've heard, I did take art classes at the junior college for some, re from really, for, from some really great, revered professors, um, highly recommended. I mean, the junior college was seen to have, was, was, was known to have the better teachers than the Cal State College down the street, and which is why I enrolled based on my friend's recommendations at Fullerton College and, and took all these great, uh, drawing classes, life drawing, drawing from models all the time. I, I found my giant oversized pads with all the different impressionistic drawings, the six, the 60 minute studies, the 20 minute studies. And, uh, and the, you'll, you'll hear about a feminine line and a masculine line. And, 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 and that's achieved in a pencil or an, an ink stroke or a brush, but, but masculine lines, feminine lines are a thing. And, and the, the X-Men books had very masculine lines and the New Mutants had a very feminine line because of the kind of the animated approach. Uh, I mean, had they brought back ElfQuest, Brett Blevins is your guy and he would have been amazing on it. Again, Brett is an amazing artist. The style wasn't matching up with what fans wanted out of those books. And that's, I, I, I don't even think I'm, I'm like, there's no exaggeration here. I really believe being a fan so much at that time still and, and, and having friends, obviously, who were fans. That's that's what we all, we were all being tainted by these Art Adams annuals once a year that heavily featured the New Mutants characters in X-Men annuals, no less, where Chris would co-opt the New Mutants team to save the X-Men team. And, uh, and again, Art is giving you these tight, commercial, masculine lines, very very appealing with with hard Terry Austin lines while Brett Blevins is giving you br brush lines and very again more of what I used to say a whimsical animated uh, style and line so uh, once I get from Bob that I can redesign the characters we talk about putting a new leader in the book and what Bob said is I'm open and I'd like to see a new leader for them I think that would be a great story point and uh so I tell him that, yeah, I've been reading the book and I didn't really care for it when Magneto was leading the book, was leading the characters for a couple of years. And I definitely thought it was a mistake to bring Xavier back 
Um, and so I had asked Bob, you know, if I could have input on this character. And he's like, yes, yeah, show me what you got. Submit to me what, you, what, what it would take for you to really be engaged and do this book and do this to the best of your ability. And so I went about sketching all these character sketches. And this, this was uh, the birth of Cable. I had this name. I had this visual. And, uh, and, and so I did multiple uh, versions, sketches in my notebook. And then, uh, again, trying to emulate. I had seen some uh, character sheets that Art Adams had done in 1982 of Longshot with four figures on the page and I decided I'll, I'll do four cable figures on the page all slightly different costumes and I'll you know fill it with notes and ideas and I'll, I'll submit them and I really I mean there was only one name for this guy in my book and his name was Cable and uh, it, it, getting back to the masculine line and what this book needed when I say masculine line work and the masculine the masculinity that the other X books, books had um, the uh, and, and, and again Walt Simonson is working with Louise Simonson on X Factor. They're working in tandem. But, I mean, every line Walt Simonson puts down is aggressive and masculine. Okay? Um, so, so that's why X Factor was so bold and had so much energy. And again, Mark and John Buscema, I mean, the most macho artist ever. Now, here's the deal. Because I'm going to talk about macho for a minute, okay? Uh, I grew up and my favorite uh, shows were Six Million Dollar Man and there was a show called SWAT. Uh, CBS has reignited SWAT with a lot of the character names, Deke, and, uh, and uh, now, you know, not going to remember any of them. But, uh, but, but, but th that version, the first version of SWAT, the special tactical police team unit, was on ABC, and Six Million Dollar Man was on ABC in 1975, 1976, 1977. And I was glued to these shows. My seven- and eight-year-old self was just in love with these TV shows, but especially Six Million Dollar Man because it was the closest thing I was getting to super heroics on television, and that show is so well made. But in 2008, Time Life offered this box set, and man, did I order that as fast as I possibly could, and it got delivered two days later to my house, and it was delivered right before Christmas in two, uh, of 2008. And if you opened the top of the box set, it went na 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 part of the Six Million Dollar Man theme. And then you close it, it would just stop abruptly. And then if you opened it, it would go na 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 close it, you know. And then there were then then if you opened it, it would go which all you guys know who watched, all you guys and gals watched the you know that 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 is the bionic sound of the bionic powers being used. So. The reason I'm telling you about the Six Million Dollar Man set. Now again, Six Million Dollar Man, uh, Steve Austin, is rebuilt as a cyborg. He has one single, single bionic arm. He has two bionic legs and one bionic eye. And uh, if you think this sounds a little like Cable, you are not off by a long shot. And so I get these all five seasons plus the cool nine, late 80s movies where they brought the characters back. Um, I watch Everything. I watched all the seasons in 2008. So, I mean, this is way past my time on New Mutants X-Force. So what am I talking about? Well, they are uh, doing an interview with the cast of The Six Million Dollar Man. And they are talking to... Uh, they, 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 are, they are talking to Lee Majors and they are talking to everybody who was involved with the show, the producers, the showrunners, everyone who, quite frankly, is still alive. And uh, and then 
you get to the wonderful Richard Anderson, not Richard Dean Anderson, Richard Anderson, who portrayed Oscar Goldman, who was Lee Major. Um, Lee Majors played Steve Austin, Steve Austin's handler, his boss, the guy that would direct him to all his missions on the Six Million Dollar Man. And they are interviewing Richard Anderson, whatever, 2006, 2007, and he's sitting there. And, and oh, he has such a compelling voice and presence. And he's talking about the success of the Six Million Dollar Man. And he goes, well, well, you know, we were a macho show. We were macho, you know. People tuned in to see see how macho our show was. And, and Steve Austin, Lee, Lee Majors. I mean, no one was more macho. It was a macho show. And I laughed out loud. Macho show. My friends know that I carry around. I, I love saying and repeating and imitating uh, Richard Anderson. We, we were a macho show. He's grabbing his fist when he says, we were a macho show. Lee Majors, macho. Steve Austin's a macho character. And, and, and that really sums up Again, the X-Men books were macho. They were macho comics. They were really male-skewed, action-oriented books. But New Mutants was not. And uh, when I am asked to design this character, I go immediately to this mysterious, cyber cybernetic uh, character to the to the point where you know I'm putting a scar a scar over one eye, and then I'm having the eye blink. Uh, with this giant power surge uh, uh, on the other eye. So the left eye's got the scar. The right eye's got the, 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 the blinking surge of power. He's got a bit of a receding hairline because at the time I'm really digging on Bruce Willis in Die Hard and Bruce Willis in Moonlighting, but he's got Arnold Schwarzenegger's physique, but now he's got cybernetic parts or are they? What's the secret? You know, is it just another cybernetic guy? You've always got, you've already got Deathlock and Cyborg, but I told my initial phone conversations with Bob were that I wanted him to be a time traveler because that gives us the element of mystery. And I am trying now to introduce a character that will resonate in the way that Wolverine resonated with me as a kid and how they slowly unpeeled the layers that maybe he's a hundred years old. Maybe having a healing factor means you stay young. So when you look at him and he looks 35, he's not, he's really a hundred. And then they laid, you know, ideas that Sabretooth was his dad. John Benner, John Byrne and Chris Claremont both did multiple interviews at the heyday of their X-Men in 1980, 1981, talking about all these different, you know, that, that Sabretooth raised Wolverine on a mountain and, and, and they were alive in the Wild West and they've been in and out of history. And, and this is the kind of stuff that really resonated. And then, of course, there's the Wolverine miniseries that we've discussed where he goes to Japan and, 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 is, and is a gaijin cast out you know, and learns the Japanese culture and shoguns and all that cool stuff. I wanted to build a character that was would last. I was a student of this stuff. Uh, Electra was fresh in my head. All the mystery that she had supplied. Also, you know, the the the, the Wolverine factor. I mean, these are these are bold examples of how I want to, you know, how I want to introduce this character. And just at this time, there is an opening. While I'm negotiating this on Alpha Flight, Danny Fingeroth is the Alpha Flight uh, editor. He calls and asks me if I want to write and draw Alpha Flight because I have now written a small Wolverine uh, three-parter for a book that they were doing that came out bi-weekly called Marvel Comics Presents. So I'm getting my feet into the writing. I mean, guys, I'm 21, I'm 22. Like, the world is my oyster. Again, 
I, I have a little bit of leverage. I don't have to just kind of do anything and everything they ask me to. And I really want to protect my interests going forward in my career because as I'm going to get to, we paid attention to each other. We are Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire. When I say we, I mean Todd and Jim Lee and myself watching each other. You know, identified immediately as the Elboys by Todd. He knew who we were. He knew we were making a splash on the scene. We watched each other in the Home Run Derby, our version of the Home Run Derby. You know, um, how many how many home runs he hit tonight? I got to hit this many. We were all vying to be the voice of our generation. I know that John Byrne and George Perez were competitive. I think we took that competitiveness to an umpteen, unseen level that people have yet to experience before or since, Okay. So if I'm going to do the New Mutants, I got I got to turn it into a macho book. And I got my version of the $6 million man, Lee Major, Steve Austin. And he's got, uh, he's got crazy Jack Kirby, you know, made up sci-fi weapons. Because at this point, Jim is doing Punisher. Punisher War Journal. Punisher is so popular, they've given him a second title. Jim Lee is helming it, working off of Carl Potts' uh, story and layouts in the first year. And Jim is, it's some of his best, my, my favorite work that Jim did. He starts off inking himself. Later, Scott Williams comes on, Al Milgram, Danny Bulanati. But Jim starts the book off. He is shifting his focus from John Byrne when he was doing Alpha Flight to really getting a heavy, heavy duty um, uh, Kevin Nolan influence, uh, mixing it up with some Art Adams, as we all did. But his Punisher is great. But the reason I bring this up is I am at WonderCon. In 88, 89, and Jim is sitting at the Marvel booth, and there is a line of people waiting for him that I don't see in my lines. I get more your standard uh, edition comic book fans, whatever you think that looks like, young and old, uh, mild-mannered folks. I don't get a lot of guys who look like they got off their Harley, or a lot of guys who, with these giant bulging muscles and tattoos, and with their, uh, their, 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 uh, you know, dog, dog uh, th th their military credentials, okay? Um, and, and, and in Jim's line, he's got all these bikers and Marines. And they, one guy, I literally go, go to say hi to Jim. Jim and I weren't close. We were just getting to know each other. But obviously, I know who he is. I know he's hitting the scene. Punisher War Journal is a big deal. I go over to kind of say hi as I'm walking around. And I, again, I see like, these these big muscular macho macho dudes um tattoos in 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 military you know some of them are in their fatigues um you know I'm, I'm telling you right now and they are putting down the book and telling jim in great detail how much they admire the realistic reference that he brings to drawing all of the Punisher's guns, his rifles, his pistols, his ammunition. In the back of Punisher Wardrobe, Punisher Wardrobe, they would show, like they would do diagrams and drawings of the actual weapons that were being used. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I got to run away from this as fast as I can because I'm sitting there going, I would like rather scrape my face off than have to look at gun reference. Oh my gosh. And they had such a high bar, such a high standard. And, and Punisher, literally, again, a sign of the macho-ness of comics. You didn't get a more macho character than Punisher. I mean, dude's family got hit by the mob. He's going to take organized crime down by himself. He fastens himself with all these weapons, motorbikes, cars. I mean, he is the, the literally the tip of the spear as far as vigilante justice in Marvel Comics in 1989. Okay? 
So, and Jimmy's drawing him and drawing him spectacularly. And he's being praised for how well he draws the, you know, the hilt of the gun, the ammo, the, all of it. And I'm sitting there going, note to self, don't, don't, don't do this because there's a lot of work required in drawing um, realistic guns reflecting reality. And I remember going, man, I, I need to draw like Jack Kirby tubular sci-fi guns so that nobody can tell me that I drew them wrong. Because if I just make them up, I can't draw them wrong. And, and, and then I have to stare at a, a bunch of guns and ammo. And, and guys literally came with, oh, I really like how you reflected this. And he, they have the guns and ammo under their arm and would show Jim. And Jim knows this. Jim would experience this. Jim laughed. He giggled. I was like, wow, you get a lot of this. Like, yeah, this book brings it out. Marines, military servicemen, bikers, just the Punisher had his own total zone of fan. And the re, and again, I'm sitting there going, man, I, I, my, my next project, I, avoid that at all costs which is why Cable has completely made up sci-fi weaponry from the word go when I depict him. As we are building out Cable, I tell Bob Harris, I really want him to be a time traveler. First thing I ask is, is there a possibility that we could put a twist and bring a little bit of that Avengers love in and have him somehow uh, be at odds with Kang the Conqueror and that Kang the Conqueror has turned himself towards a mutant uprising in the 30th century? Kang the Conqueror is my favorite Avengers villain. I love every story. There is no bad Kang the Conqueror stories. There are no bad Kang the Conqueror stories. I love him. I love his visual. I love his name. Kang the Conqueror. Okay? Um, just killer stuff. They even did a parody of him called Dang the Conqueror in their like Not Brand Eck comedy books that they did. You can Google that. Not Brand Eck. Okay? So uh, Ma Marvel always loved to do the parody and the comedy stuff. And Dang the Conqueror, Kang the Conqueror. I loved them both. But Bob immediately said, no, 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 let's steer away from that. Let's, let's not have him. But I said to Bob, the reason Cable resonates, the reason he is so important is he knows how everybody dies. He comes from the future. And when he arrives, he is here on a mission. And he is very solemn because he knows how every single member of the X-Men and the characters in this expanded X-Men universe, how they come to their fates. And he is here to stop it. And at that point, I then start drawing up a ton of visuals for bad guys. Now, here's the deal. You can hear me say it, and that's great. But you're like, oh, man, again, did you bring some receipts? I did. You know, this is the best thing. The timestamps cannot, be, uh, uh, you know, cannot be qualified. If you bring a timestamp, uh, this is about as best as you can get. In 1989, the 1989 December issue. So it's on stands in uh, October, the December issue of Marvel Age magazine, okay? Because people confuse. The, the cover date is not the ship date. This shipped three months earlier, okay? Marvel Age magazine, Marvel Age 82, 82. This book was so successful, it went over 100. This was Marvel's monthly fan magazine where they'd give you interviews, where they would give you um, a, a preview artwork, pre all the solicitations, a glimpse at working at Marvel. So issue 82 of Marvel Age Magazine, it has the Squadron Supreme on the cover. Echo, baby, the DC's Justice League is on the cover, okay? On page 11 is the Mutant Report. The Mutant Report. I don't know if they made this up just for this magazine or this issue, but the Mutant Report. And it says, the next step in news revolution for mutants, okay? And it's got extra, extra, like X-Men, extra, extra, okay? It says very boldly, and this will be in the news and notes for our 
episode this week, Liefeld's New Mutant Sketchbook. Cable is in the top left. A character named Cougar is in the top right. And Strife is lower um, center. Liefeld's New Mutant Sketchbook. A, a staff uh, writer named Dwight Zimmerman wrote this. And it says, the new costume designs and characters from Rob Liefeld just keep coming. The new costume designs and characters from Rob Liefeld just keep coming. This time around, we're showing you some new characters who may or may not be new mutants or new enemies. Enjoy! And under Cable, it says his name will be Cable or Cybert. Rob's notes indicate he is a man of mystery. Is he a mutant or not? Is he a half cyborg? He's at least 40 years old, but no one's no, no, no one knows for sure. And there's a chance he has a past with Wolverine. With Strife, it says, is he, is he friend or foe? His name is not known, but from the looks of him, he looks like someone even Wolverine would think twice about fighting. Okay, and then Cougar, it doesn't really matter because I didn't submit him, but there's a little paragraph written about him. So, Marvel Age Magazine. Whose sketchbook? Liefeld's New Mutant Sketchbooks. Whose characters and designs keep coming? Rob Liefeld. They are celebrating me. I am... I have excited the office by the time this stuff hits. Okay, that's 1989. They are getting excited about the stuff that I'm giving. Whose characters are they? Rob Liefeld's characters. Just like Cougar. Cougar didn't make it across the finish line. I pulled him at the last minute. Cable was fully formed when I handed him in with multiple options. Kang the Conqueror was immediately taken off the table by Bob Harris. That's fine. I understood that. Um, now it was time to build out some more stuff about Cable. Who was he? Why is he here? He is here to oppose uh, this, this armored character that Wolverine would even think twice about hitting. This drawing is of Strife. Strife has this massive next-level armor. I'm like trying to go like one better than Dr. Doom. And uh, little did anybody know that from, from the jump underneath that mask, you were getting the same character in different incarnations. One is Cable. One is named Strife. But underneath, as you discovered in New Means 100, is also a different variation on cable, okay. So, so, so as I am submitting this, Bob uh, has told me again from the jump that he will be um, replacing the writer on this series. So I don't have to worry um, because I had just done the New Mutants annual and it was okay. It wasn't the best time I had in my entire life. And again, you got to understand, I'm headstrong. I'm a headstrong, 21, 22 years old, okay, and uh, during straddling the, that age at this time. I've had great success out the gate with Hawk and Dove. I went on to do all these new X-Men and Spider-Man, you know, assignments. I'm, 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 I'm going to stores. I'm going to conventions. I'm seeing how people react to my work. I want to stay in the picture. I want to stay in the game, okay? Jim Lee's got this brand new launch, Punisher War Journal, brand new Punisher vehicle um, that, that he's pushing. Todd is blowing up on Spider-Man. Eric is coming on strong, uh, flanking Todd on Spider-Man. He's part of that bi-weekly that's going on. He does the, the primary Sabretooth issue that summer. So I am really thinking, I got to stay in the picture here. I got to stay in the picture, guys, because I don't want to be left behind. I do not want to be uh, left out of all that is going on. And I am taking a great risk in this new Mutants book. So I have to make sure it's a book that I want to do. In my proposal for Alpha Flight to Danny Fingeroth, Cable is in there. So many of the connections that he would later make, uh, make especially his, his relationship with Wolverine and a past with him are stuff that I alluded to in those notes. But when Bob came to me and said, Rob, look, and, and Bob was pissed. He was pissed I was even entertaining Alpha Flight. And 
Danny Fingeroth had gotten clearance from Tom DeFalco to move forward with me. I can't imagine how much chaos I was creating because I just would not commit to New Mutants, but I needed things to be the way I needed them to be. And Bob told me that Louise would be off the book soon. I do not know Louise Simonson. I believe I have met her once. Um, she is, by every single account on planet Earth, a lovely, lovely, a lovely, lovely human, a lovely person, obviously uh, a great mom, outstanding wife. Um, I don't have a personal relationship with her. I believe I spoke with her once or twice at best. Um, I was a man on the mission. My head was on fire. I wanted to turn this book around, make it competitive, take it from the 100,000 sales and compete. But I needed the pieces to make this a macho, a macho comic. Just like Richard Anderson, we were a macho show. I needed, I needed macho. And Cable was my ticket in. And issue 87, which um, really debuts all of these different pieces and sets them in motion, was something that I had a great, strong hand in forming and shaping. And um, Bob was the go-between. I, I was intimidated by Louise. I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm, I know her history as an editor of the X-Men books that I loved as a kid. She's the editor on, on the Death of Phoenix storyline, okay? And, 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 and all of that stuff. And, and her when she was Louise Jones, so if you run and see the, the credits, she's Louise Jones before she's Louise Simonson. I'm intimidated by her and her relationship with Walt, who is one of the greatest comic book artists ever. But I know that I need certain things out of this to make it happen. And Bob is assuring me that everything that I have laid out is going to go. Now, the story that you have been told on the other side is that Bob would call up Louise and say, hey, we're going to have this time traveler. This, this, well, that, that's, what, that's, that's what he's going to be. Well, that's great. He's telling the other side what I am telling him in regards to this character. Bob Harris did not form Cable on in any way, shape, or form. I negotiated Cable before I came on the same way that I yanked Cougar. I kept Cable because I got what I wanted. Cougar is so close. He is partially drawn into X-Force number one before I yank him and change him and make him this character, uh, Tyler. But, uh, you know, they, that, that was too close for comfort. Um, and, and, and by that time, by X-Force number one, the entire situation has changed. But going into X, New Mutants, I definitely had all these different parameters. Um, and, and in the issue before this, the reason this is called Rob Liefeld's New Mutant Sketchbook number two in Marvel Age 82 is because the issue before, they have a double page of all my new New Mutants redesigns and all of the Mutant Liberation Front because I said, we need a rogues gallery. We need bad guys. Who are the New Mutants bad guys besides the Hellions who have been the bad guys forever and are tired and they're worn out? And I was never a guy that was really into the Hellions um, and, and, and the White Queen being their nemesis, I, I thought we needed more macho uh, uh, characters. So I created Forearm and Wildside and Reaper and Zero and Thermal and Tempo and Thumbelina. And, and they are wholly handed over to Marvel from me to be part of the mutant liberation force that fights on behalf of Strife. So from the get-go, all of New Mutants 87 is a Rob Liefeld design comic. And here's my thing to you. Compare that to any issue that came before. It does not look like any issue you had received in the New Mutants years prior to that. And people have told me how much 
they were like, I can't believe New Mutants just completely shifted. It shifted gear, it shifted focus. Yes, that is because I negotiated my way onto that book for that book to be depicted in the way that it was. The relationship with Wolverine was so important to me because Wolverine was such an important character in the Pantheon and he had to have a connection and a battle and that was negotiated and I kept banging at them. I wanted it as early as possible so by the time that you get it in issues, I believe, New Mutants 91, 92, is it 93, 94? That, that is something that I have been banging on since I get on and, I, and, and of course back then, it's this weird thing, Wolverine couldn't appear in a whole bunch of places as he would later, they would put him in so many books. But back then you had to negotiate, I saw Jim had had Wolverine battling Punisher and I'm like, it's driving me crazy. I got, I think in, in issue six or seven or five or six of Punisher War Journal, again, am I watching my peers? Am I competitive? I am. I can speak to it from my point of view and if you were to put the mic in front of them, they would say yes, they were competitive as well. Uh, I needed Wolverine. I needed just one line to establish that he and Cable knew each other because I knew that the fans would completely and totally buy into that relationship and it would add just another element of mystery to who Cable was. My options for Cable and who he truly was were there from the get-go. Uh, I wanted to give them options because why do you have to decide early on? Again, I read stuff about Wolverine that they never fully landed, but it was out there. And so I just gave them a bunch of options about the ultimate destiny of Mr. Nathan Summers. But Cable was the name I was going to die on. And early on, Bob was not convinced that that was the right name. He wanted to uh, call call him, uh, oh my gosh, I've said it so many times. Uh, Louise offered the, uh, for, for him to be called Commander X, and I thought we're dead if we call him that out the gate. That's that's a that, that goofy trope name at the time. Cable was the was the strong name. Uh, Bob had had I, you know it wasn't Lance, but it was just some kind of like other name. I said Bob, I'm not using that, and I'm not using Commander X. It's Cable, or I go home. I mean it was it was that, and Bob knew I have Alpha Flight, I have all sorts of offers, and so I had to play a little bit of hardball. And did my heart race when this would happen? I'm in Anaheim, California. They are in New York City. Yes, my heart raced. But I stuck to my guns. I got my way. Shortly into the run, I mean, it's not even 10 issues. And um, and, and Bob, the, the, the res response to Cable is enormal, enormous. And I have to fight for his depiction in every single issue. But Rob, did you, did you bring the receipts? I did. I've got the receipts again. There is this weirdo interview that I did in Wizard Magazine. Wizard Magazine number 10. Uh, which is out in 1992. It's the June issue. Maybe it comes out in April. Maybe it comes out in June. I'm not sure about the magazines. But I give this interview to this very hostile, super hostile interviewer uh, who, who, who just really wanted to argue with me the entire time. And I even say in the interview, look, I'm just 24, man. I'm a 24-year-old guy. Patrick Daniel O'Neill. Never heard from him again after a couple of these interviews. But I do this interview, and he calls it No Holds Barred. And he says, you know, this is a candid conversation where Rob Liefeld answers the tough questions. Okay, here's one of the tough questions. He references an interview that I do a year prior in a, mo in a magazine called Comics 
Spectacular. Comic Spectacular was a offshoot of a popular, the most popular sci-fi magazine called Starlog. And they started a comic book companion magazine. Newsstand, I, I bought this at the bookstore. It was a big deal if you get something off the bookstore, right? It was out in the real world in the mall. Um, comic Spectacular was racked right alongside Fangoria, Starlog, and I did the cover. Um, I don't know what edition this is. Does this have a number? Um, it is issue number four, Comic Spectacular, issue number four, in May of 1991. And in there, I say, I mention, and he he cites it here. Patrick Daniel O'Neill says, I need to talk to you about something else. This is on like page four of our interview, which is tons of New Mutants and X-Force imagery. The cover of 98's in here, the cover of 99, the cover of New Mutants 100. All of the New Mutants covers are here. Um, this is a really fun interview, by the way. And, uh, and, and so this is on the stands in 1992. And he says, let's go on to, to something else here. In, in an interview 18 months ago, it says the following. At times, Bob Harris and Rob Liefeld would rework the plots over the phone, even though Liefeld was never given co-plotting credit. Simonson eventually left the title, leaving the writer's position open. Here's my question to you, Rob. This is this interviewer, Patrick. Do you and Bob Harris, do you think it's fair that you rewrote that plot? when the only name that was going on it was the writer, Louise Simonson. Did she know about the rewrite? Was she okay with it? At this point, I said, hey, Patrick, let's let's do a crash course in comics. And I and I walk him through, uh, and, and I talk to him about, do I think it's fair when John Romita Sr. redraws a face that Todd McFarlane and I draw, drew on a cover of New Mutants 85, which did. If you get New Mutants 85, all of the New Mutants are flying into the frame uh, where Odin, Thor's father, is laying in his Odin sleep, which is a phrase, Odin sleep. He's in his forever sleep. And we did this wicked, killer old man face. But when it's out print, it's it's John Romita, Jr., John Romita Sr., who was the art director at this time, the famous and glorious John Romita Sr., drew a new face and plastered it over. And to this day, that old face is gone. There's no copy of it. We didn't get a copy of it. Todd didn't get a copy of it before he sent it in. So it is just plastered over. Todd, I think, has that cover. I have, like, tried to peel it off, but it would rip the page. So we have just decided to, you know, we it lives in our memory. And I say to Patrick, I said, hey, do I think it's fair when, when John Romita Sr. redraws the, the cover, the Odin's face, you know, two minutes before it goes to the printer? I get, You know, I'm getting a little defensive there. I said, here's the deal. Uh, New Mutants 89 was a story called The Gift. The kids go shopping for a present for Rain slash Wolfbane. And there's a fight with Cable and Freedom Force. Bob and I discussed the plot and I decided to change the pace of the story without changing the content. Yes, this is possible. Um, everything that was originally in the plot happened, but instead of the New Mutants meeting Freedom Force and Cable coming to save them, we had Cable fighting Freedom Force first, and the New Mutants bail them out. All the elements happen. They meet, which is the most important thing. It was a deadline thing. This is no joke. The mutant books are the freshest books to market. Uh, it's a wonder the ink's not coming off of them as they are so wet. They are produced very last minute. Um, Bob and I uh, decided to redo the plot, okay? So this is this, this point of contention uh, that 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 that's New Mutants eighty nine guys New Mutants eighty nine I'm being pressed on it in nineteen ninety two after speaking of it in an interview in nineteen ninety one and uh, and 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 it was uh, 
I said here, this wasn't Bob and I getting together and go, ooh, a new Louise Simonson plot. Let's rework this. It just, it didn't flow. And uh, both Bob and I thought it was taking too long for the kids to buy the gift and meet up with Cable. This is true. So by my third issue on the book, I am exerting that leverage that I told you about. I, I, I read the plot and after two breakneck pace issues, 87 and 88 really move. They move. They're action. They're macho, okay? We are going back to this feminine approach. And it's the kids out on the city looking for jewelry to buy for um, uh, a piece of jewelry for them to buy. And and they're in a gift shop. And, and in the meantime, Cable is, is trying to um, walk through New York unnoticed and, and be, um, you know, uh, uh, n- not tagged by... by by Blob and Pyro, who are part of Freedom Force and uh, formerly the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. So I literally looked at it and said, I believe this works better here. And and called up Bob and he was fine with it. We ramped up the action. We definitely changed the pacing. We that, that The encounter with Cable and Freedom Force was earlier than anticipated, and then the New Mutants kids join it. We literally did do exactly as I ascertained in there, but this interview is being told to you because was there friction early on? There was. There was. And 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 I really felt like, um, if I'm going to compete, give me the tools to compete. Let me do what I do. Hawk and Dove was a D-list book that that got, that, that, that hadn't been published in 20 years, and the favor on that And, and, and put it, uh, you know, into its own regular series at DC Comics. I knew what I was doing. I studied commercial comics. I think you guys have seen that since 1975, I've been absorbing comic books. I, I spoke and continue to speak fluent comic book. So with this in mind, I was allowed a lot of leeway. The Wolverine Cable episode, again, sometimes I wasn't, I wasn't interested in credit. That didn't matter to me. I, I, I've done stuff that I'm uncredited for. I did in, the entire layouts for X-Force number eight that Mike Mignola drew over. Mike Mignola called me up and said, everyone says your layouts are really something special. I would love to work over them. That is why I did the layouts. But when the book is printed, you would not know that I was not credited. Was I paid for them? I was, but I wasn't credited. I didn't go raise a stink. It's just sometimes some things go unnoticed. Sometimes you do more work and you're not credited. And sometimes you do less, less work and get more credit. In this case, there was friction early on because I needed my macho book. I needed New Mutants to step up and meet the moment and and keep up with everything that was going on in the X-Men universe. And this is prior to Jim being handed the reins of the X-Men. He's coming, but he's not there yet. Mark and the gang are still pumping out great, very top-selling, aggressive comics. Todd, Spider-Man is very macho, very macho, okay? And, uh, and I keep coming back there because I think there's there's something to say, especially uh, in that time and place. Your action heroes were everything in Hollywood. John McClane in Die Hard, every role Arnold Schwarzenegger took, every role Sylvester Stallone took. I mean, the, the macho guys, uh, uh, Jean-Claude, Van Damme, all his movies were hitting. He was doing them with greater frequency. He had Steven Seagal. Um, you know, macho action characters were really booming and I was intent to reflect my macho guy with all his secrets and his secret past. And, uh, you know, Bob had even said, I think this guy looks too old. I said, would you trust me? Just trust me. I, it, it separates him from Magneto and Xavier. And I said to Bob, 
His news from the future is that Xavier is wrong and Magneto is wrong. And that became the staple of everything moving forward. Magneto wants to destroy mankind. Xavier thinks we can live with them peacefully. That's wrong. There are threats that we have to be aggressive and stamp out before they happen. And sometimes it's going to leave a mess. And that was Cable's message. And I was allowed to deliver it and depict Cable exactly as I had wanted to the point where the sales were shooting up. We, start, we started jumping thirty to 40000 an issue. And by the time I am rewarded with the full-time story credit, writer credit, we are selling 700,000 copies ourselves. We are neck and neck with the X-Men. You guys, this is an exciting time. This is what I, everything that I had hoped for. I had to keep pace, especially given that Todd had been given the call that Spider-Man was going to get relaunched. So Jim at his number one. Todd it is number one. I had my New Mutants 86. That's where I started. But it really, really gets into gear and starts being a Liefeld comic with New Mutants 87. Uh, uh, Eric Larson jumps right in there on Amazing Spider-Man and fills the role uh, that Todd left behind because Amazing Spider-Man is red hot. And Eric gets on and in, 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 in my personal opinion does such an amazing job with his Spider-Man effort uh, in some ways I think superior to what Todd was doing but Todd definitely had a niche and a style and an interest and people were digging on him and I am just getting started I'm just getting cooking but my career is going in the way that it is supposed to go because I have exerted leverage I have exerted influence did I kind of you know maybe uh, you know hold the hostage a couple times uh, in, in regards to well maybe I'll go do Alpha Flight well maybe I'll go do this um, absolutely. I was determined to get it right. That the, the new mutants had not been portrayed in this manner in years and they weren't a competitive book. And as I was told, if you don't get it right, we're going to cancel it so you can have a wide berth. I changed the looks of the kids. They didn't look like Madonna and Billy Idol tired 1982 tropes anymore. We changed everything about the book and we made the book competitive and it was ready to take off and the sales were burning up the charts. So guys, I have brought the receipts, the references. This is this is stuff that's in print from from 20 years ago, from from 22 years ago. This 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 Marvel age. It was a big deal. I got a banner at the end of 85. It's like here comes Rob Liefeld. I was so excited. Um but that's a lot to live up to and I was in I was intent to do that. So, so much of what today has been about is, is laying the groundwork because what happens with cable moving forward helps determine so much of what goes on in the 90s. X-Force is an amazing, amazing blockbuster hit. What's going to happen with Todd, what's going to set in motion, what's going to happen with Jim is, is so important in how everything is going to shape. We are going to go way beyond construction board, multicolored covers on Batman, okay? that the, the table's being set, the players are in place, and we are going to continue this and continue to plow through the 90s. I could be here for 20 episodes minimum. We have so much. Deathmate, you guys know what Deathmate is? Valiant Image get together? I'm like, that's two episodes. The formation of Image, is that four? Is that five episodes? I mean, we haven't gotten to any of the good, any of the juicy stuff, but today I laid some cable about laying cable and getting him set up. And sometimes it's uncomfortable and sometimes it doesn't work out pretty. Um, and sometimes you're intimidated, but you got to stick to your guns. And it paid off for me. And, and, and it carved out a whole new niche into my 
left in my studio where I'm broadcasting from are no less than 25 cable figures, not Deadpool, cable figures. And that, that is 25 of maybe 45 cable action figures, plastic, 12 inch, six inch, three inch, um, and, and, and then, and then statues, enormous statues that are on the market for thousands of dollars. Now sideshow shows up with a new cable every year. Cable impacted the culture. It all starts here. He jumped out of my head. He jumped out of my head. I fought for that name. I fought for that. Look, I fought for that mission. I fought for that destiny. I am so glad that you guys went along on the ride with me and so glad you guys took the ride with me on this episode of Rob's Observations, the 90s. We're going to continue to plow through it. Come back again. We will speak and continue to talk the 90s and all the fun that came out of it. Uh, you guys, you can find me on social media, on Twitter. I'm at Robert Liefeld with the blue check to disseminate me between the fake guy. On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld. Seek me out. I'll be there. At Rob Liefeld, the same thing, blue check mark. I'm on Facebook, I'm on social media, hit me up. I've got Snake Eyes out right now, my new G.I. Joe comic, having such a good time. Hope you guys check it out. Please spread the word. Um, subscribe to these podcasts. And the other thing, if you could not find a previous a podcast from the past, they are on my robliefeldcreations.com website. There is a podcast option. We have all 31, 32 episodes for you to enjoy. So hit up my website if you can't find them on on, on iTunes, on Spotify, where all the great places that carry these websites. You guys, thanks again for your time. Thanks again for walking down these roads with me. As always, please take care of yourself. Stay out of trouble. Be good. And we will talk again soon.